Hi, I'm Lainey, host of the True Crime Fan Club podcast, and I'm excited to tell you about my brand new podcast called It's Haunted, What Now? It's a podcast that brings you true stories about haunted objects and the owners who unknowingly welcome them into their lives. Join me as I share these creepy, spooky, and downright terrifying stories. You can find It's Haunted, What Now? on your favorite podcatcher or at hauntedpod.com. to scare you to sleep. I'm your host, Shelby Scott. Thank you all so much for all of the voicemails I received. If you missed it, look at the feed for the bonus episode that I released this week called Voicemail Full. And I answered all your questions and it's all very candid and way more relaxed than my usual episodes. It was a lot of fun and you all made me cry happy tears. So I would say it was a success. I've actually already been getting more voicemails since that episode with more questions, so I'll definitely be doing another one of those in the future. So if there was a question you wanted me to answer that I didn't get or get to, or no, I got to all of them, but if there was something that you wanted wanted to ask me or something you wanted me to expand upon that I talked about, or just, you know, wanted to leave me something very nice, or again, a critique. I started out the episode with a critique, um, just to show that I was being honest and I was going to show you everything. Um, and I did. So, um, yeah, the link to that is in the show notes. I believe it shows up at the very bottom of the show notes. Look for the anchor voicemail box. Um, now let's get started with this this week's stories. Wow. I'm a little tongue tied this week. First up is another great story from Tracy Carville, who you know from their story, Can I Come In, that I absolutely gushed about on the voicemail episode. I talked about how it gave me nightmares. Well, this is another one bound to give you nightmares. This is Suffer the Children. The graveyard was empty, except for the woman in the veil. She let the tears run down her cheeks behind it, not bothering to wipe them away. What did it matter? No one else was here to see. Clasping her rosary in tight fingers, she read the freshly carved words on the headstone once more. Such a short epitaph for her darling boy. Albert Caldwell, born 1869, died 1885, drowned in Rotterdam Harbor. It said nothing about the joy she and her husband had felt after he'd survived beyond his infancy. Nothing about the pride they'd felt as he'd grown tall and strong and gone out into the world to his chosen profession. A young man. Nothing about their heartbreak when the news of his death had reached them. They'd said that he'd slipped on a wet deck while loading crates onto the ship, fallen and hit his head, 
and tumbled overboard. They'd said that he'd likely been unconscious when he drowned, as if it were a blessing that he'd not known the moment of his death, as if they'd found his body and could speak of these things with any certainty. Because they hadn't found him, they'd swept the harbor as well as they could, of course, but it was one of the largest in the world. Their darling Albert had simply vanished into the waters of the North Sea. They had had three children before Albert came. Not one of them had lived past their sixth year. Their first, Arthur, had tumbled into a river while the nanny's back was turned. His name was the first and most worn on the headstone. Their next, Elizabeth, had been born sick with what the doctors had called water in her lungs. She had battled for fifteen days before she succumbed. Their third, Catherine, had been born perfect, a little angel. She had been two months old when the nursery ceiling had collapsed during a heavy storm. Old rotting beams bowed in by the weight of the rainwater pooling on the broken roof above. Soon after each death, another pregnancy. And after each pregnancy, another death. They had found Arthur's body when they searched the river. The look of terror on his little face still haunted her dreams. But they had assumed he had been frightened by the fall or the ordeal of the drowning. Wouldn't that have been enough? They had buried him and mourned him and tried to let the coming of a new baby comfort them. But when Elizabeth had been born and then died, and they had said their goodbyes to the poor child before the doctors took her away. That same look had been on her tiny face. That terrified look. What did a tiny, sick baby have to be so afraid of? The grief had threatened to overwhelm them. But then, she fell pregnant again, and they had endeavored to persevere for their new child. When Catherine was born healthy, they had been so relieved. When she had stayed healthy and come home with them from the hospital, they had been overjoyed. They had situated her in the nursery, in the top floor, in the cradle that had been meant for her sister. They had had no idea that the roof was damaged, in fact, the house had been surveyed just a few years earlier, before Arthur's death, when they were thinking of selling it to find somewhere bigger. The roof had been fine then. But on the night of the storm, Catherine had been restless. She put her daughter to bed, fretting at the babe's cries, and had been unable to sleep herself. It was close to midnight when the thunder began. 
massive rolling booms that shook the house. She had paced the halls for a while. Then, on a whim, she had gone into the nursery to check on Catherine. It was the first time, the only time, she had been present at her child's death. So it was the first time, the only time, she saw the shadowy figure that leaned over the baby. One hand pressed down over her face. Shadowy, not because she was hard to see. In those last few seconds, the room was ablaze with lightning. But because she was composed of shadow. Shadow that leaked and coiled upward like ink in water. Hair that drifted around her face like it was caught in a current. And when she turned her head, ragged, empty eye sockets, like they had been gnawed at by hungry fish. She had no time to react, before there was an almighty crack, and the ceiling gave way with a tired groan. A cascade of water crashed into the cradle before it was obliterated by rotten wood and shattered tiles. Her shriek was lost in the noise. Her husband had gotten out of bed to investigate the crash and discovered her in the midst of the destruction, digging frantically for their daughter. They had found her. There had been no sign of the woman. And on Catherine's little face, that same expression of horror. Sometime later, after they had buried their third child in what was now a family plot. She had asked him about the woman. What had she seen? Was she losing her mind? But the look on his face, as she described the phantom, had answered for him. He knew. And when she pressed him, he had told her everything. He had been a sailor before Arthur was born. When she had fallen pregnant, he had given it up to take on a safer and better paying role in an insurance broker's office. And they had married. But before that, he had been employed on long journeys far across the globe. One such journey had taken him to the coasts of Japan, and being so far away from home, he had indulged himself in the entertainments of the country, strong rice wine, and pretty young women. One such woman had followed him back to the ship when they were preparing to leave port. She had found him on the deck of the boat and seized him by his arm, shaking him and talking rapidly in her own tongue, gesturing to her stomach. She had been crying. He could not understand her. He had told her to go home, but she would not. Finally, he had started pushing her back toward the gangway, forcing her off the ship. At the last step, she had slipped on the wet deck and fallen 
hitting her head on the side of the ship on the way down. He had watched her disappear into the murky water and not come back up. The ship's deck had been empty at the time, except for then. No one on shore seemed to have noticed. There had been no one he could call for help in time, or so he had said. And she had been nobody that anyone would miss. So, he had turned his back and let her drown. That same night, as the ship was cutting through the Pacific Ocean, he had the first dream of the young woman floating close to the seabed, tangled in long weeds, lifeless, but still reaching out for him and gesturing to her belly. Weeks later, the next dream, or nightmare, showed her bloated and rotting with fish nibbling at her fingers and eyelids. The dreams continued infrequently with the young girl becoming more and more terrible to look at until the last few showed her as not much more than a shadowy shape in dark waters. A shape with empty eyes. He had sworn to her over and over that he had not understood what the young Japanese woman had meant. She did not believe him. She knew exactly what that poor girl had been trying to tell him. What else? He had shunned her and left her and their unborn child to die. And now... And now... That hand on Catherine's little face. Those empty eyes. The water. Each one. It had been water. She had tried desperately to put it out of her mind when Albert was born. They had raised him in terror of the day when the woman would come again. Each year that passed, each birthday... They relaxed a little more. Each Christmas they had given their thanks to God for keeping their only living son safe. When he had turned 16, she had almost convinced herself that she had never seen the shadowy woman. Slowly, they convinced themselves that the curse, if there ever really had been one, had lifted When he announced that he wanted to be a sailor like his father, she had swallowed the panic that had threatened to overwhelm her and told herself that there was nothing to fear. She had gifted him with a St. Christopher's medallion to wear around his neck, kissed him fondly, and wished him good fortune. She had found out she was pregnant again, just two days before the news arrived. For a brief moment, she thought it was proof that they had broken the curse. A new child, while the other still lived. But of course, that was not the case. The news had just taken a while to reach them. 
she had not needed to see his body to know that his eyes would have been wide, almost bursting out of their sockets, his mouth contorted in a grimace of fear. She had not needed to be there to know. Again, the water had taken her son. And now, all that was left of him, just like his siblings, was a name carved into a stone. The wind cut across the graveyard, tugging at her dress and lifting the veil from her face. Dimly, she heard thunder in the distance. Her husband had chosen not to accompany her today. He was burying himself in his work hiding in papers and numbers. That was fine. She could hardly bear to look at him anymore. Her hands cradled the small swell of her belly. Still a few months to go. The thought of it sickened her. She didn't think she could stand to raise and love and care for another child, only to bury it with the others. How long would this one live? A few years? A few days? She couldn't bear to think of it. No nursery was prepared for this one. No delicate clothes. No tiny shoes. She couldn't do it. Not again. Please, God, not again. Of movement in the trees ahead of her caught her eye. Looking up, she saw a figure she had only seen once before. Yet it was as familiar as the sight of her own face. A shadowy figure that leaked and coiled upward like ink in water. Watching her from empty eye sockets. The world stood still. No wind. No sound. Her heart hammered in her ears. Please. She managed to whisper. The figure raised an arm and pointed to the east. She understood right away. She didn't know if this was an act of mercy or simply the culmination of the woman's curse on her husband. The last thing she could take from him. It didn't matter. Either way, she had no other choice. She turned to the east and started walking. The river wasn't too far away. Next up this week is by Frank Woolsey. You know Frank's amazing works, Le Silk Moldy and Camp Goodwill. This week, they have for us Nancy. My best friend went missing last year. Yesterday, 
the first package showed up. It was innocuous when it arrived, and that made it scarier than if it had been drenched in blood or something. No, it was a box, a small one, about the size of my cell and about as thick as my high school textbook, if that. The packaging looked like a brown paper bag, folded neatly and taped down where the flaps met the box. It looked like factory packaging, neat, tidy, and made with machine-like precision. There wasn't a crease to be seen, and there was a little white ribbon tied neatly around the package. There was no return address, and that should have made the hair on the back of my neck stand up, but it didn't. It was a simple package wrapped in brown paper, and it had no return address. I had no reason to be afraid. I walked back to my apartment, package in hand, and set it down on the kitchen table. My roommate Seth wasn't back yet, and I had the place to myself. I'm not sure what made me decide to open the package neatly. I have always been a pain in the ass at birthdays. At one point or another, my friends and family stopped wrapping my gifts, instead electing to place them in bags with that paper stuff inside to conceal what the gift was until I pulled it out. I still wound up getting it everywhere, of course, but sheets of colored tissue paper are much easier to pick up than little strips of wrapping paper. There were a lot of compulsions that happened, one after the other. The first was the one that led me to checking my mailbox the day before the mail was due, and the second was rifling through my junk drawer to find the letter opener. The third, well, I'll get to that. As I brought the letter opener over to the kitchen table, I caught sight of something written along the side. The number four, and the letter U. For you, I thought. For me? I shook my head and snipped the ribbon by hooking the letter opener beneath it. Again, I don't know why I was so careful. I suppose something just told me to be. I took the package apart carefully, pulling it away to reveal a cardboard box, of course. It wasn't wrapped around the object itself, but around a box containing... something. I don't know why my skin crawled. I should have listened to my instincts. But I didn't, and I opened the box. My breath caught in my throat. I was looking down at... Nancy's phone butterfly sticker still stuck to the left of the home button. With shaking hands, I reached down to pick up the phone and thunk. I stare at what was in my hands. The top half of the phone. Just the top half, because the bottom half hadn't come with it. The two had been neatly separated. Perhaps neatly isn't the right word. The break was not smooth. It wasn't like the phone had been cut through with a heated knife. It was more like... God, this is a stupid comparison, but... You know when you snap a Kit Kat in half? Like you're supposed to? 
There were bumps and ridges and grooves and little pieces that stuck out of the broken phone. But it had broken away from the bottom half like it was meant to come apart. Like a Kit Kat. I dropped the top half of the phone back into the box and bolted to my computer, sitting down and typing into the search bar. Someone dropped off a package, and I don't know who. Everything that came up was about getting a package delivered to your house that wasn't yours, with one result towards the bottom regarding porch pirates, but the former couldn't be the case here. The phone was Nancy's. I was sure of it. For you was about as unspecific as one could get when it came to naming a recipient. But this wasn't a USPS fuck-up like Google suggested, because the mail wasn't even supposed to come today. Besides, it was for me. And the other option Google spat out was impossible, because the package was sitting on my kitchen table. I refined my search. I got a package, no return address. Nothing. Fed up, I turned off my computer. I knew the best course of action. Whoever had sent that package knew what happened to Nancy. I drove to the store and purchased a security camera. I told myself the whole drive to turn to the police station, but I ultimately decided to wait until I got the footage. I didn't want the police to interfere and potentially scare off whoever had sent the package because I knew there would be more. I would get the footage and then I would take it to the police and they would find Nancy. I was still setting up the camera, as hidden as I could, across from the mailbox, which I was fairly certain was illegal. I'd actually stopped for a moment, reconsidering my decision to go to the police with the footage. What if I got in trouble? I was crouching there, across from the mailbox, when Seth walked past. Damn it. I'd forgotten that he walked past the mailbox on his way home from work. Sam? He said, narrowing his eyes at me. That you? (laughs) The fuck you doing? I peered up at him sheepishly and shrugged, trying my best to come up with a believable lie on the spot. You know Miss Osborne? I said. You know that her place got broken into a couple days ago and some of her shit got stolen? (sighs) Of course I do. Not much else to talk about around here. I wish the most interesting thing I could talk about was Ms. Osborne's missing jewelry. But alas. I'm worried, I said, measuring my words. About a break-in. Seth raised an eyebrow at me. Why? If you ask me, Miss Osborne took her own stuff and hid it somewhere. I hear her ex-husband called her up to see if she's alright. Like she got her left kidney stolen instead of some gold jewelry that's probably fake. I think that's what she wanted. His attention. Besides, why are you setting it up by the mailbox? Not much use being able to see the burglar if you only see them when they're outside your door. I said, trying to keep my voice level. Seth shrugged. Guess so. He walked back to the apartment, thank goodness. But I could tell he didn't believe me. That's fine, I thought, as I finished setting up. 
my worries about the police fading into the background. I wouldn't believe me either. And that, I suppose, brings us to the present. The present in which I am ducking out of my apartment and down the elevator, which starts and stops and stops and starts the whole way down because our landlord is a lazy piece of shit who's been promising to get to it for a month. With a metallic groan that sounds too much like a death rattle for my comfort, the elevator reaches the bottom floor, and the delay before the doors slide open is just as long as it usually is. Which is to say, it's long. But I don't really care about the elevator. On a day where my heart wasn't in my throat, I would probably whip out my phone and text a friend to complain about it. A year ago, I might have texted Nancy. Nancy, I think, as longing settles into my chest and makes its home there. Nancy, I'm coming for you. I take the camera out where I've stashed it, make sure it hasn't been damaged, and then I shove it into my pants pocket, the perks of shopping in the men's section. I get up and walk over to the mailbox, slow, like I'm moving through molasses. Nancy, I say out loud this time. Nancy, I'm coming for you. There's another package in the mailbox. I don't know what I would have done if it had been empty. Probably, I think, I would have set the camera back up and gone home. Maybe, I think, I would have slammed my skull into the mailbox until it cracked open. I do not set the camera back up, and I do not bash my head open against the mailbox. But I do go home. I don't know which feels heavier, the package or the camera. Seth heads to work, and the minute he bids me goodbye, I tear the package open, all former care and precision gone. Inside, this one is Nancy's wallet. It's been emptied of cash, of her cards, of her ID. But I know it's her because of that fucking butterfly sticker. I got her a packet one year, and she put them on absolutely everything. I teased her mercilessly. I wanted to kiss her. I shake that off. No homoerotic thoughts about your missing best friend until after you find her. I put the wallet aside and take the camera in my hands. I'm just about to look at the footage when I catch sight of something sticking out of the wallet, just barely poking out of the corner. Maybe they left something in. Her driver's license to prove it was really hers? I set the camera back down and pull out the little card. It's not her driver's license. It's a photo of her, of Nancy, one of my favorites. I took it on a Polaroid camera for the aesthetic. We were sitting on a hill, shooting the shit, and she just got this look in her eyes. So I tried to take a candid. She noticed before the shutter went off, though, and turned her head to face the camera right as it closed. 
clicked. It's a really good photo. She's smiling, bright and genuine. Her knees are tucked up to her chest and the hole in the knee of her left pant leg is <laughs> absolutely gaping. She never did cut them into shorts like I suggested she do. She's wearing a denim jacket over top of a hoodie with the hood up. And looking at the photo, I can practically hear her breathy laugh as she realized what I was doing. I hadn't known she'd kept the print. What sends a pang of terror and grief through my heart, though, is her eyes. They've been scribbled over. I brush my hand over the marks and the texture of the print changes significantly as my thumb brushes over bumps and ridges on the warped plastic. Someone's taken a pen and scribbled over the top of Nancy's beautiful brown eyes. Hard enough to change the texture of the print and almost go through it. I toss the Polaroid down as my heart sinks into my stomach. The photo flips over as I do so and I catch sight of something written on the back. 54 Bellevue Lane, Pewaukee, Wisconsin, 53072. Be there. There's what looks like a house key taped to the back as well. And before I think twice, I peel off the tape and drop the key into my pocket. I plug the address into my phone. It's only a 15-minute drive away. Next up, security footage. Who dropped off the package, and by extension, who has Nancy? She's not dead. I can't... I can't let myself think that she's dead. She's not dead. I'll pick out the clearest frames of the video, show them to the police, and give them the address, and they will find Nancy. Not her body. Nancy. Anyway, I take the security camera and plug it into my computer. The footage comes up in a folder, and I open it. There's nothing much at first. A couple night owls walking by. A fox, once, trotting down the sidewalk. After the first few minutes of watching footage so boring it makes me want to cry, I remember that I can speed it up. I do just that. And it goes at two times speed. I don't want to miss anything important. Until at exactly 3.26 a.m. Someone walks past the mailbox and stops turning on their heel to face it. I click pause, click off the fast forward, and then hit play again. This is definitely the mysterious delivery person. They pull a package out of their pocket, then deposit it. I can't see who they are very well. They have a dark gray hoodie on, the hood pulled over their head as far as it will go. That is, until they step back from the mailbox and flip the hood off. I suppose they haven't seen the camera, or they wouldn't be doing this. They turn to leave, 
and I hit pause so fast, I almost knocked my laptop off the desk. It's... It's Nancy. The footage isn't great, and the color is washed out by the darkness of night, but it's her. I lean in close, so close that my eyes start to burn, and the colors and shapes on the computer screen start to blur together. My eyes are wet, and I can hear the soft buzzing of my computer loud, loud in my ears. My head pounds, and my chest burns with a sick sort of heat. I shut my computer down without watching the rest of the footage. I should have gone to the police. It probably wouldn't have mattered that it was her on the camera. She could have been coerced or threatened into dropping the packages off. They would have investigated, at least. Who am I kidding? I was never going to go to the police. I was always going to double-check the address. Take a butcher's knife out of my knife block and drive to number 54 Bellevue Lane Bellevue Lane turns out to be a mostly barren neighborhood it's half trailers and half one story houses scattered across the area just close enough to call each other neighbors there's a church right across the street from number 54 But the lot outside of it is empty, except for a lone white truck parked at the curb. There's a cemetery by the church, but that doesn't scare me. It's broad daylight. There's no fence, and all the graves are cut-and-paste Catholic. No. What scares me is number 54. It doesn't look scary. But then again, the packages didn't look scary either. It's just a one-story white house with a clean, gray roof and a small patio outside the front door. Inside that house, though, is the answer to the questions I have been asking myself for the past year. I look around to make sure nobody is watching me. There are maybe five or six residences here including the trailers. I'm sure these people know who lives here and who doesn't. And if they see me entering a house that isn't mine, with keys that aren't mine, well, I'm not in the mood to answer any questions. Not right now. The white truck in the church lot doesn't move. There's nobody around. Everyone is probably at work. My boss let me go when Nancy went missing, when I slipped into depression, but he did let me know that I would be welcomed back once I was better. I thought I would never be better. Maybe I will. Nancy, I say as I unlock the door. for you. The inside of the house is pitch black when I enter. That's easily remedied once I find the light switch, which is easy enough once I turn on my phone's flashlight. All lit up, the inside of the house is just as unassuming as the outside. 
It looks like the kind of house that would be across the street from a church, if you know what I mean. Hello? I say. It's me. Sam. Nancy's friend? The butcher's knife is a comforting weight in my purse. There's silence for a few moments. And then... There's a creak from inside the kitchen. I slip my hand into my purse and walk into the brightly lit kitchen and stop dead in my tracks. Sitting on the island, alive and unharmed, is Nancy. Hey, she says. She's wearing her denim jacket on top of her hoodie. Sorry to bring you all the way out here. It had to be isolated. Can't meet like this in public. I don't care about that. I say, breathless. You're okay. Nancy shrugs. Yeah. Is something wrong? I ask, then slam my forehead to my palm. Stupid question. It's okay, Nancy says. Sorry to bring you all the way out here. It had to be isolated. Can't meet like this in public. I... You you already said that. Why does it have to be isolated? Nancy smiles and leans forward, cupping my face in her palms. She presses her forehead against mine. And her eyes focus on mine. They're bright blue. Nancy's eyes are brown. Nobody can hear you scream, she says sweetly. And then the face of the thing that is not my friend opens. Like a flower. My name is Seth. My roommate went missing last week. And today, I caught a package. Thanks for listening. And thank you again, of course, to my authors for providing me with these amazing stories to bring to life. If you have a story you'd like me to give the scare you to sleep treatment to, just send it over to scareyoutosleep at gmail.com and I'll give it a look-see. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you all for being here. Thank you for all your questions again. I'm really tired. Um, So I'm going to keep this short no rambling for me this week um okay remember to follow the show on twitter instagram um you can join the facebook group the discord channel um there's merch all the good stuff all that stuff is linked in the show notes oh um tracy by the way who wrote the first story has an amazing wattpad with tons of stories so i'm going to link that in the show notes if you want to read more of her stories they're they're so good they're just so good 
And um, so yeah, I, she has a few anthologies. So I'm going to link that. Um, I believe that is all for now. All right. So I hope you all have an amazing weekend and a beautiful week. Wishing you all just, I hope each and every one of you has something really special happen to you this weekend, like something good and special, or you do something good and special for yourself this weekend. Um, I believe that's all for now. Go get some sleep. Sweet dreams. Item number SCP-5186 SCP-7160 SCP-7533 Object class Euclid Keter Safe Special containment procedures Spreading across the hemisphere and kicking up vast amounts of ash and dust <laughs> The only thing I could hear was 7219 <laughs> laughing <laughs> Do you remember your name? Heartland Counseling. Appointment update. I feel them again. Heartland Counseling. Appointment update. They're in my ears! Heartland Counseling. Appointment update. Nobody understands! SCP Archives is a weekly fiction podcast. Each episode, we dive into the strange, the unknown, and the... Find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or at scparchives.com.